0: Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is our 10th of BYU's fall semester 2021. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by my colleague in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, Greg Stallings. Greg is a recent IC co-director. He specializes in 20th century Spanish poetry, in critical literary theory, and his research and teaching of literature often connect to two other art forms, music and film. Welcome, Greg.
1: Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure.
0: It's always great to have Greg with us. He and I share in common a fascination with Luis Buñuel, one of the most iconic directors from the 20th century. For our listeners, playing this week at IC is the animated 2018 film that was directed by Salvador Simon, titled Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles. And this piece, one of four films showing this week, is gathered around the theme of films about filmmaking. And this film in particular gives us the opportunity to talk about one of our favorite film subjects, which is Luis Buñuel. Although Buñuel is also a controversial figure, and you'll probably find as many people who love him as who hate him. But let's uh, begin, Greg, by just asking you, who is Luis Buñuel and why is he important?
1: Yeah, Luis Buñuel is a Spanish-Mexican filmmaker. He was born in the northern region of Aragon in Calanda, which was still a very small medieval kind of town. Buñuel said that the town was medieval during his childhood and still medieval well into the 20th century. And he was um, groomed to be very religious and he studied with the Jesuits. And um, a lot of things we see in the film are historical. Uh, we see him having a little magic lantern kind of image show using a bedsheet to impress his friends. And they're all cheering for him. And so he had a talent for image making, movie making as a small child, even though he didn't know about movies, probably for quite a while. He uh, eventually went to Madrid to study agronomy. And we know that he was fascinated and even studied insects. And so all these things appear in his films, right? Soon after. And he studied at the University of Madrid. And he eventually changed his major to philosophy. And he was living in the Residencia de Estudiantes, the student residency there, which is still there. And burgeoning Hispanist, you can go there and do research and spend a few nights and it's really cool and fascinating I did the same actually several years ago and they still have pictures of Buñuel from that era on the walls in the library often dressed as an athlete he had he was a jock basically when you look at Buñuel and his cameos especially in Unxian and Lu, he's buff he's muscular and because he was the jock of the group he wasn't so artistic he just fell under their artistic spell right away and the residencia itself was just like this magical place to live and to study. And they would have visiting lecturers come in all the time, not just lectures. They would stay there a few nights. How cool is that? Right? So you could like hang out mm. with great artists like Igor Stravinsky, the Russian composer, right. Albert Einstein, the noted scientist, the French philosopher, Henri Bergson, who's not a household name anymore, but he was hugely influential on Salinas and several of these writers, young writers with this notion of like complex, non-chronological time. The great philosopher Basque, Spanish philosopher Miguel de Unamuno was there often, and so he found the spell of not just art, but especially the new art, the avant-garde, which in French means kind of moving ahead, you know, boldly go where no person has gone before is their attitude. So experiment, try new things, and don't try to create great lasting works of art at all. They just wanted to kind of shock people, out of their complacency, and they wanted to change the world, and they wanted to demolish traditional institutions, the church, even the family, traditional modes of knowledge. And so, um, yeah, he just kind of fell into all that, but he wasn't really artistic. That was his problem, right? He uh, was more of a jock. He had other interests. It was just an incredible place to live and to study. His roommates included future Nobel Prize-winning or Cervantes Prize-winning poets such as Rafael Alberti, Pedro Salinas, Luis Cernuda, Jorge Guillén, Vicente Alexandre, Manuel Alto uh, These are the poets to become quickly known as the generation of 27, the most influential poets, and not just poets, but also painters like José Moreno Villa, and especially a young painter named Salvador Dalí quickly that duo of friends were joined by a third artistic individual, a young man who was talented in painting and drawing and music and composing music, and eventually, quickly, theater and poetry, and his name was Federico García Lorca. And Buñuel said the following later in life about Lorca, whom we know was tragically murdered at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War in 1936 at the age of 38, one of the great tragedies of Spanish cultural history, of Spanish history. I mean, it's kind of like, what if England would have murdered William Shakespeare when he was 38 years old? What a great loss to humanity. That is the statue, really, without exaggeration, of Federico García Lorca. Nowadays, at least, in the world, not just in Spain. And Buñuel said about meeting Lorca the following, We liked each other instantly, although we seemed to have little in common. I was a redneck from Aragon. He was an elegant Andalusian. We spent most of our time together. We used to sit on the grass in the evenings behind the residencia. At that time, there were vast open spaces reaching to the horizon. He would read me his poems He read slowly and beautifully, and through him I began to discover a wholly new world. And also Buñuel told his son later in life that his great artistic awakening was with Lorca at his side. One evening, Lorca said, let's go out and look at the moon. And Buñuel said, that changed my life. And so you remember that the moon is a recurring image in his films, beginning with Chien Andalou, right? As it is a recurring image in Poems by Lorca that some of the people listening here have taken Spanish 339 with me and others, Spanish 330 now, and I've read Romance de la Luna Luna. The point is that Buñuel eventually became a very poetic artist, but he was looking for his art form. But he found it in the form of cinema, especially a a film by a very young, uh, eventually great filmmaker. He was from Germany. Fritz Lang impressed him deeply and just kind of (laughs) tore him asunder as far as his perception of art, the world. And he thought, this is my art form, cinema, right? And then in 1925, he moved to Paris. He enrolled in a filmmaking institute with a noted director in Paris named John Epstein. He eventually became the assistant to John Epstein. He just fell in love with movies and realized this was his art form, even though it took him a long time to eventually make his own movies. Quickly, he was going to two, then three films a day by his own account. Started working a little bit as a film critic, trying to find his space in the Parisian filmmaking scene. And finally, in 1929, he made his first film, which he co-directed was Salvador Dali, Un Chien Andalou, an Andalusian dog. The title is interesting. I don't know, Doug, if you thought about this title. Who <laughs> is from Andalusia, right? Who is from Andalusia, we would say in Spanish. Federico, right? Federico took that as a dig, and there are at least one, maybe two brief, dreamlike images of Federico. We think there's a person who's very shadowy, a personage, and people think that's Federico and it's a dig. Who knows? At any rate, Federico took it wrong. At that time, they start separating. Even during Shenandalu, Lou, there's tension between Dali and Buñuel, even though they co-directed, co-wrote it, but we'll talk about the writing in a second. It's not traditional writing, obviously. Lorca took off, split to New York City, took a boat to Columbia University, and he was inspired to write his most avant-garde works there, including the future collection of poetry called Port in New York, Port Nueva York. He was the witness to the Wall Street crash. And so all these volcanic events are happening in the world and in the life of Luis Buñuel, creating those tension also with Dalí. Dalí became famous before is getting his feet on the ground artistically, finding out what he could possibly do. And Dali is already a world-class painter by 1929, early 30s. So all that brought a lot of tension. And so in the film that's shown this week at International Cinema, oftentimes he disparages some of the Dali. He has negative comments because by the early 30s they had separated artistically, personally. But they did have a marvelous moment together, the co-creation of Chien Andalou. And Bunuel said the following about the creation of that work. Quote, I dreamt last night of ants swarming around in my hands, said Dali. And I said, Good Lord. And I dreamt that I had sliced somebody or other's eye. There's the film. Let's go and make it. End of quote. And he also said, Our only rule of making the film was very simple no idea or image might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind. We had to open all doors to the irrational and keep only those images that surprised us without trying to explain why." So they were following the imperative of the great philosopher, the so-called Pope of Surrealism, another really young guy in his 20s initially, who published the Surrealist Manifesto in 1924, Uh, his name was André Breton, and he said that surrealist art had to be automatic, automatic writing, like you cannot pre-plan. But of course, making a film, you have to plan a bit, right? You have to organize (laughs) the scene of filming, even even if it's a very open kind of film. And so they made that film, and basically they wanted to shock, not just the bourgeoisie, they wanted to shock even the young vanguard artists who by that time, for Buñuel at least, were just too kind of set in their ways, and they're talking about changing the world with art, sitting in cafes or sitting in open bars. And that's the very first film of Buñuel and the Labyrinth of Turtles, the film for this week. <laughs> Young intellectuals sitting around in a cafeteria or open-air bar discussing what is art, arts to change the world. And Buñuel got impatient with that. He wanted to change the world. He wanted to shock even those people. So when Chen on the Lou was made to shock that audience. But they loved it. And André Breton, the Pope of Surrealism, soon declared that both Dali and Bunuel were official members of his elite group of young avant-garde surrealist artists. And so they were on their way. But the next film, they really wanted to shock the world. And that was called The Age of Gold. And that came out in 1930. And with that film, they succeeded in shocking just about everybody. And so that's the beginning of the animation film that we have for this week, Buñuel in the Labyrinth of Turtles, in that we see the uh, premiere of that film, people start yelling, and there's commotion, and he walks away from the theater, and there's smoke emerging, and all those things happen, supposedly at certain screenings. Young fascists threw ink at the screen. There were fights and screams and death threats and excommunications for the people involved in the making of the film. Buñuel himself really struggled to find backing for his next project, which he eventually found, right? And that's Las Urdes, eventually titled Land Without Bread.
0: Let me jump in real quickly to set up this uh, third film of Buñuel, because we have uh, jumped uh, through his first two projects. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen Munchen Andalou*, this is a must-see for anybody who is interested in film theory and in film history. And of course, it has some of the most uh, famous sequences, including what uh, Greg has already talked about, that that eye-cutting scene. So be sure to watch that. One of the fun things about uh, Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles is precisely that it deals with a moment of transition in Buñuel's career in which he's made two very provocative films and now he uh, enters into the world of documentary filmmaking and so Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles is a film about the process of making that film so the more you know about Buñuel the more you may like this film but just uh, knowing the basics that we've just learned about uh, this filmmaker will really help set it up and so, Greg, keep going. You're, you're giving us great information about Buñuel and tell us why his third project was a documentary film and perhaps some of the ways in which Salvador Simó tries to tell a story about Buñuel's maturation as a filmmaker through the story that follows a documentary filmed in 1933.
1: Your question is really provocative because... You're indicating some kind of transition from pure avant-garde, shock value filmmaking to something which is much more, right, historical, or you know, it's a use of ethnography. In other words, the study of customs and peoples and cultures. And uh, it seems, you know, superficially, that Buñuel went in a very different direction, and I think he did go in a very different direction. Yet at the same time, if you study the history of surrealism by the early '30s there was this group of brilliant young surrealists, Michel Larisse, Roger Queirois, and especially George Bataille, who started what they called the College of Sociology. And they were fascinated precisely by ethnography and, again, cultures and peoples, and especially peoples that would be considered other or different or exotic even vis-a-vis mainstream society or urban centers of Paris, Madrid, where they lived. And so this project, I think, is part and parcel of this kind of move in surrealism towards studying people that are just kind of different and not quite modernized, or in this case, extremely primitive. And uh, the whole story is really interesting. He was given a book about the people living in this region, Las Urdes, which is extremadura in spain south west spain right and uh, these people are so impoverished and so suffering that you know nobody knew about them basically they're out in the middle of nowhere there are no roads and so you know one would say this has nothing to do with surrealism but there are certain things to think about first of all the way he puts the together is extremely shocking and even during you know the events of the animated film which you all will see this week the people at his side, especially his producer and collaborator, Ramon Asin, he himself is shocked to see Buñuel staging so many events. <laughs> that whole story is really surrealist in itself, in that he got this idea reading this scientific treatise on the peoples of the Urdes region to make this documentary. And, of course, no one wanted to back his films because of the scandal of the Age of Gold, right, and excommunications and all these things. So he goes to his friend and he just kind of tosses out the idea of him back in the film. But this friend was an anarchist and impoverished like dreamers and anarchists were back in the day with a small family. And he jokes in the film to Buñuel, if I win the lottery, I'll help you with the film. And historically, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> it seems like a sequence from one of Buñuel's surrealist films, but precisely, he won the lottery and calls him, and that's exactly what happens in the film. So at any rate, during the filming of Las Surdes, there's a lot of improvisation, and that's kind of automatic writing, according to Andre Breton. And that itself would be surrealist, the idea of producing scenes, Right that are staged is shocking even today we watch the film we think what the heck right when the goat falls off the cliff and you see the puff of smoke in the corner of the frame you realize that this is not traditional documentary making and just the whole juxtaposition of the film right and that there's a narrator and it sounds like a travelogue at times and then it sounds like a scientific treatise at other times And just the shocking, shocking images, the dead baby, which, you know, we find out in the film was staged, but it's very shocking. I watched it with my wife without her knowing that. And she was shocked recently.
0: (laughs) In fact, Greg, I might point out that uh, as we were talking about this film and whether it uh, deserved a place at international cinema, uh, that was one of the things that uh, riled (laughs) One of my right. colleagues was the idea that, oh, well, wait a minute—the uh, baby wasn't really dead, you know—and uh, there, there are, um, uh scenes that are clearly manipulated in the film, and uh, one of my arguments in favor of this, of this animated feature is precisely the fact that Buñuel is trying to make you upset. If you watch this film, Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles, or the original film, and I might point out that uh, we're using the title Las Hurdes, the film is also known as Tierra sin Pan, or Land Without Bread, and the original documentary is fairly short, and you can watch it online on YouTube, for example, if you want to see it. But that's one of the points that I want to make is that Buñuel, in many ways, is not trying to do a straight up documentary. And right. uh, there are things that are placed within the film to shock, to make you question. And I think in in some ways, perhaps he's ahead of his time in the sense that, that we understand really well today that an authoritative voice probably doesn't exist and is probably trying to fool you. So if they realize that Buñuel is not telling this story straight up and that he's questioning the boundaries that exist between fiction and uh, nonfiction, documentary filmmaking and uh, feature filmmaking. And there are many moments that are staged, including the one that you mentioned, where they actually shoot a mountain goat to have him fall. And you see the puff of smoke from the gun. And so you begin to question the narrator. And I just want to point out, perhaps, that uh, this film does have some scenes of animal cruelty, this being one of them, that uh, you know some people may prefer not to watch. I think that Buñuel is being very honest with the material for his time period, not to try and justify all of his decisions. And you'll notice that within Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles, that the characters who are making the film with him also question his decisions and consider it perhaps an act of cruelty, what he's done. That's an important point, I think, for people to take into consideration, but I think it does fit within the questioning, the shocking artistic universe in which Buñuel is trying to make a film. And that's what
1: surrealism was all about, is changing the world, not trying to make some dodgy, stuffy, full of aura artwork in a museum but rather something that's out there right kind of opening up people's minds and shock was part of that you know surrealist aesthetic or purpose and not just shock but the idea of like art about art art that's self-conscious or whatever jose ortega gasset the great spanish philosopher wrote this famous essay called la deshumanización del arte and he was talking precisely about the generation of 27 poets which would have included Buñuel, and in that their art was often kind of self-referential, right? Art about art. All that was kind of part of the shock value of art back in the day. Nowadays, we're used to art about art. We watch Disney Plus and shows like WandaVision or Loki or what have you, right? Or, and also, again, the, the juxtaposition of this kind of dry narrator, the shocking scenes, the self-referential filmmaking, and the soundtrack, which is truly bizarre. Brahms, right? Of all composers. <laughs> I think that that's what we call in surrealism, several things, a collage, right? We think of the great collages of Max Ernst, which would have like living rooms full of pelicans and nude women. Or we think of, uh, Andre Breton's notion of compulsive beauty, which is incongruous juxtapositions of images, right? That produce some kind of shock. They all kind of go hand in hand is my point. All these different elements to produce a work that would be hard to say he's completely devoid of surrealism is my argument here, but, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a, a fascinating work. And, and the film itself is going to be shocking at times, but I think that's part of Buñuel's kind of aesthetic to kind of
0: shake us up a bit. Greg, why don't you tell us maybe some of the, the things that you think make Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles a good film to watch, not only uh, based upon the uh, the exposure that we have to surrealism and Buñuel and this just incredible Intellectual environment that, that are the first decades of the 20th century in France and Spain. But what else are pe- people going to like about uh, Bunuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles? Yeah, thanks for that
1: question. I'm reminded of what the incredibly famous and influential American film critic Roger Ebert once said about movie going. He said that movies are an empathy machine. And it would be hard to say that Buñuel has a lot of empathy in some of his films, including Los Olvidados, right? Piridiana, films that deal with poor people, again, poor children and Los Olvidados, poor adults, homeless people. Now, a lot of these films seem a bit heartless, but I think there's a great heart, which combines with a rage even in Las Urdes, which is captured by this film beautifully. And that we see his evolution from avant-garde artists out there to shock, Provoke, right, wake people up, change the world. To a more mature artist during the filming, sure, he's staging events. He's trying to shock even the village, local people of these different villages in the order region by dressing as a nun at one point. Sorry for the spoiler, but <laughs> he's just out there trying to like freak people out and shock and provoke and disgust even, and cause controversy. And yet we see that his heart is growing exponentially slowly but surely as he works with these impoverished sickly literally dying in some cases there are certain people that he encounters a little girl that is dying and then we find out a few days later that she died and as far as i know that girl really died right historically uh, and even the stage things with the dead baby, all these kind of connect him with those people in Las Urdes. And you can tell that his heart is growing and his empathy is increasing and his compassion is getting larger and larger. Especially there's a beautiful scene with a little boy in a school that <laughs> there's this kind of beautiful face-to-face, eye-to-eye thing that, that's really beautiful and really evokes, I think, some of Buñuel's films, including Las Urdes. There are scenes where the poor children, for example, in that school, look at us in the original film and also mise in a beam kind of frame within a frame film within a film moments in the animation film that you're going to watch and they're staring at us right and it some critics have said that buñuel was evoking a little bit diego de Velasquez, the great baroque spanish painter of las meninas and other paintings where his figures we kind of look at you and kind of draw you in and that's what happens in the film he's drawn in to these scenes of misery and his compassion increases. I myself was drawn in as I watched this film and experienced a greater sense of compassion and concern. Now, what to do with it, right? Buñuel goes on and has a illustrious career and we think, did he really care about those people? I think he did, you know? I know that he went back in 1960 and restored the film and put a soundtrack and, you know, the world was ready for this. It had been banned by the Franco regime for many, many years he restored the name of Ramon Asin, his producer, the guy that won the lottery to finance the, the movie, to the film credit. Asin had been erased from the credits of the film by the government when he was accused of being an anarchist, and he was assassinated during the first months of the Spanish Civil War. And so it seems like he did keep his heart, and um, this film, I think, was really central to his heart. And again, the evolution of compassion and movie going. it's really interesting that a filmmaker would develop his compassion while he was making a film. So, yeah, I love this film. It's really interesting.
0: I I think those are uh, great reasons to watch this film. And uh, I would uh, just uh, simply add that it's a fun multimedia production as well. Those of you who are fans of animation, this is 2D animation. Uh, The film did win the Goya Prize, uh, Spain's uh, highest film awards for best animated feature film. I think you'll like the animation. It is a film that's based on a graphic novel and includes fragments from the original black and white documentary, which also is a lot of fun. So I think if you like film and uh, films about filmmaking, that you're going to really like uh, Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles. Let me ask Greg perhaps to um, uh, finish up our session ask you and me each to give one more Buñuel film that we really like and would really recommend to our viewers, to our listeners rather.
1: That's a difficult challenge, Doug, but thank you. Um, I mean, I could mention A Gran Calavera, which is probably his most commercial work. It won him a lot of money, but it's really funny and charming. It's a good introduction to his work, The Great Madcap in English, Subida al Cielo, some of his comedies made in Mexico. In the 50s, Miridiana, his great masterpiece, which caused so much controversy as it recreated The Last Supper. And it's also fascinating homage to Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, we think. But maybe El Ángel Exterminador, made in 1962, in Mexico. I think it's a really interesting film to watch during the COVID era. And in fact, I published a little tiny micro essay on this film as it relates to our COVID era in the College of Humanities website, if you wanna look that up. It's a one minute read. And um, basically it has to do with a bunch of people <laughs> from the upper classes wearing their mink stoles and their tuxedos returning from uh, musical performance one evening, they go into the mansion of a man named uh, Senor Nobile they're having a nice time during dinner, they listen to piano music. And when it's time to leave, they can't leave. And why can't they leave? There's no explanation. And you realize they're kind of caught into a a dream reality, right? And so day after day, night after night, they try to escape, they can't. And so the whole thing devolves into a Lord of the Flies kind of situation. And so I don't want to give it away. But I think it's a really interesting parable as to what happens when we're caught in a pandemic situation. There's a moment near the end where they say, yeah, the people in the mansion, they're suffering some kind of pandemic or some kind of plague. And so when I taught that film, I thought it was really interesting that there were so many connections with the pandemic. And in fact, I chose this film, El Angel Examinador, a couple semesters ago, right on the eve of the pandemic. I had no idea the pandemic was gonna happen. It was showed during that winter semester of 2020 At the end of the semester, and I think the whole crew of international cinema, the co-directors and Mario Lohr, Oscarson, we're all kind of freaked out. And there's a sense of the uncanny, you know, but at any rate, the film is really timely because it's a parable about living under these awful conditions. And yet, you know, do people need to devolve? Do people need to degrade themselves and become bestial and animalistic and cruel, or cunning or? Is there room for compassion and kindness and dialogue in these situations and if as you watch the film look for examples of kindness which are minuscule they're puny but they're great examples i think for us suffering this pandemic so that's my selection el angel exterminador
0: The Exterminating Angel in English and uh, a great film and definitely on uh, the surreal bandwidth, right? And the film that I'm going to recommend is Los Olvidados, which is the great uh, Mexican film from 1950. And we haven't talked about it a whole lot in this podcast, but Buñuel was an individual who made films in a number of countries, of course, in Spain before he uh, became an exile in Mexico and later made films in France. And so a lot of times we can divide his career into his Spanish, Mexican, and French films. I'm a Mexicanist and uh, so I'm, I'm very much intrigued by the films that he makes during his period there. Buñuel actually becomes a Mexican citizen in 1947, and changes the Mexican film industry, although his start was a bit bumpy. When he made Los Olvidados in 1950, and it showed in 1951, I I think that um, Buñuel's career was resurrected in many respects. He had been uh, almost, almost disappeared from the film scene for a while, but he also made that film at a time period when Mexico was in a golden age period that was the height of Mexican filmmaking, but it was a moment in which Mexican films tended to be romanticized, idealized. It's connected in many ways to the muralist movement, which also, and we all love the Mexican muralists, but they have a tendency to be less critical of the state of society. And so when Buñuel shot uh, Los Olvidados, a film that really perhaps shows the underbelly of Mexico City at the time period, the opening sequence, for example, shows us The Socalo, the main plaza, which is kind of the heart of the nation in many respects. Uh, But that's not the focus of Buñuel's camera. Instead, he goes to the streets that are just a few blocks away and shows us a bunch of street kids who are lost, who are criminal, who are abusive. And Mexican audiences at the time period were shocked. Absolutely shocked. Some of them. The film didn't last long in theaters. In particular, it uh, shows us a mother who is the exact opposite of the idealized figure of the compassionate, loving Mexican mother that had been a part of Mexican tradition and Mexican art for so many years. The good thing about Buñuel is that he is a person who slaps us awake, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. and has us see things in a different way. And Los Olvidados, even though it was received with some harsh criticism in Mexico when it came out, shortly thereafter, became one of Mexico's most important films. And typically, if you make a list of the most important films from Mexico, Buñuel's films are going to be on that list. In a 1994 list, for example, Los Olvidados was number two. So a Spanish exile living in Mexico who becomes a Mexican citizen, who criticizes Mexican society and identity, becomes the catalyst that will allow Mexicans perhaps to see some of the strengths, but also weaknesses of their own ways of viewing themselves. And in that sense, I think Los Olvidados is important. Luchena de Lu is important. Las Hurdes, the documentary, and also Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles can be important films for us to watch and to question how we see the world.
1: Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, thank you for that reflection. And um, when I
0: see Buñuel's films, I know that he
1: was criticizing... <laughs> Christian hypocrisy and films like Nasadin or Biridiana. There's this kind of really bleak view of humanity. And yet when I reflect on Christ's imperative to help others and to be charitable and to serve without asking for anything in return, I think of Buñuel's films all the time. They've really shaped the way I kind of experience religion and see the world and try to follow Christ. So paradoxically, Buñuel said famously, Thank God I'm still an atheist, but the fact that he's saying thank God, right, tells you something that perhaps there's a little opportunity, right, for spiritual encounter in his existence. So, love Bunuel. I know he's not for everybody, he's dissonant, <laughs> he's shocking, and yet he gets you to think. And I think that's why Hitchcock said he is perhaps the greatest living filmmaker back in the day, because it's a thinking person cinema. And I think that's refreshing nowadays where movies kind of teach us to not think and to buy products. So thank you for this opportunity and um, hope to see you again at see soon. Thank you, Doug.
0: Thank you, Greg, and uh, hope you will see uh, more Buñuel films. And thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. Until next week, keep seeing great international movies.